Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. It's glad. I'm very glad to see all of you here. Um, hope you're having good weekends. Apparently, Kanye did something recently. I don't know if you guys heard about that. Um, so um, we are still in the book of Daniel. We have a few more weeks. Um, we'll be walking through the book and talking about uh, what is going on here and how um, it presents a vision for us of how to live in a place of exile, all right? And, but Daniel is actually about to kind of change its format for delivering to us that vision for how we're supposed to, to live that out, all right? So the first half of the book of Daniel is basically narrative-driven, right? It's, it's a story about Daniel or his companions and just kind of what they do, and we've been taking observations from that. So Daniel makes like a swift change, though, and it's going to start in the chapter that we're walking through today uh, in chapter 7 to being basically completely vision-driven, so we're going to be talking about um, some of the same types of stuff, but now we're going to be using the medium of vision to, um, to, uh, to kind of uh, put out, all right? So um, we're going to start to work through those visions for the next few weeks. But in order to do that well, we have to understand how to read this vision uh, literature well, all right? And so we talked about scripture a couple weeks ago. We're going to talk a little bit about it again today, and we're going to talk about specifically from the lens of reading different types of genre in the Bible, all right? So we'll start off with that before we actually get into the passage. And to do that, since it's uh, World Series time, we're going to talk a little bit about baseball, all right? So, all right, I want you to take a look at the catcher here. He's the one with all of the gear on. He's squatting down um, behind the batter. So, when, so I played baseball growing up. I was a pitcher, and so this, uh, this analogy really works for me. I, I read, uh, I kind of expanded on it from a book I read. Um, but when you're playing catcher, you need to set yourself up differently depending on what type of pitch you're receiving from the pitcher. So this catcher right here, he's setting up to catch a fastball. Now, a fastball, in theory, just goes in a straight line from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove, which means the catcher doesn't really have to worry about moving himself too much in order to catch it. So you'll notice his um, stance, his heels are fairly close together. He's just kind of squatting. He's in a comfortable position, and hopefully all he needs to do is just move his hand a little bit in order to catch the ball, all right? So, so for fastball, you just kind of have to be in this really simple, balanced stance. If you're setting up to catch a curveball, though, you need to set yourself up a little bit differently. So you'll see here the catcher, this is Jose Barrios from the Twins, uh, throwing a, throwing a curveball, and I'm not sure if that's Mitch Garver or um, Jason Castro back there, but you'll notice his stance is a little bit differently. All right, his heels are wider apart, his knee is actually down on the ground, and you'll, you'll notice he's trying to create a wider, like, backstop for the ball, because curveballs can go into the dirt. They can go a lot of different directions by design because you're trying to mess up the batter, right? Like that's kind of the point. And so the catcher needs to uh, set himself up well in order to catch the pitch. Now, if you set up to catch, uh, if you set up to catch a fastball and a curveball is thrown, like there's going to be a decent chance that that ball goes past you. You're going to miss it. It's going to go back and it's going to be a problem. It's going to head to the backstop or something like that. And, and it, there's a problem. So how you set up matters in terms of catching the pitch. That's kind of the idea I want to get forth to you. And reading different genres in scripture is like that. 
right? We have to have a good understanding or a good grasp of what type of genre we're reading in order to catch the pitch well, if that makes sense, right? If we, and if we set up wrong, we can sometimes miss the pitch. We can miss the meaning of a text because we were expecting one thing and we got another and so we miss out on it. And so when we move into this vision literature uh, in the Bible, um, it's good for us to have a good understanding of what type of genre it is. Now, in the Bible, you do have all sorts of different genres. You have letter or epistle. That's like Paul's letters. We went through the book of Ephesians when we first launched. That would be an example of that. Um, there's narrative history. So the first half of Daniel or Ruth, which we did in the summer, that would fit into that category. You have biography, which would be the Gospels and the book of Acts a little bit more generally, kind of biographies focusing specifically on the events of a certain person's life. There's poetry, like in the, in the Psalms or a Song of Solomon, and there's wisdom literature in, the Pro, in Proverbs. And then there's a, f- a specific type of genre, which, like all those genres that I just mentioned, we still have those types of genres around today, but what we're going to be talking about is a type of genre that shows up in this part of the book of Daniel, it shows up in the book of Revelation as well, and a couple other places in the Old Testament, and this genre is called apocalyptic, all right? It's a very specific type of genre that's a little bit weird, all right? If you've ever read through the back half of Daniel or Revelation, then you, you kind of know what I'm getting at, and, and because we, people don't always have a good understanding of it, um, it has, the, at times, the meaning that comes with apocalyptic literature has passed Christians by, kind of like a pitch that goes past them, right? And, and so, like, we don't always um, feel comfortable reading this type of genre because, like I said, it's, it's, it's like a genre that exploded in, um, in the Jewish world, and apparently a little bit outside the Jewish world as well, around the time that Daniel is being written, so a few hundred years before Jesus shows up on the scene, and then maybe a hundred years or so after Jesus shows up, all right? It's a specific genre that we, we see show up there, and it uses, it's very, um, it's very, uh, it uses a lot of symbols, it lo- uses a lot of um, images to communicate what it's trying to, trying to say, all right? Now, we live in a super literalistic age, so we like, we like science, we like numbers, we like this is X, this is Y, do this, don't do that, believe X, don't believe Y. We really like it when it's just nice and plainly written for us, and sorry, but apocalyptic is not at all that, okay? So we have to kind of set ourselves up to understand it well, or else we will, miss, we will be in danger of missing the pitch. So I kind of want to set up how to read that, and as we move through the, the book today, we'll kind of um, talk about different features of apocalyptic. Now, the word apocalyptic, it doesn't just mean like, you know, like there's a p- apocalyptic movies, right, that are always set after the government collapses and there's no electricity anymore, all right, it's not referring to that, apocalyptic actually comes from the Greek word, which just means, uh, or the Greek word apocalypsis, which just means revelation, all right, so it's about uh, a revelation that is coming from God to us, all right, and so it has, it's very, like I said, it's very uh, symbol laden, it's drenched in images and a lot of times numbers, but the numbers themselves are symbolic, and it uses these symbols to meld theological and then like what we would call political or social realities together as a kind of a way to comment on what is happening in the world in one time, but then because it's in, it's, it shows up in the terms of images, it can be extended and reapplied into different settings throughout history. That's one of the advantages of apocalyptic. 
Now, why not just come out and say it, right? Why, why, why wouldn't they just have written it down nice and plainly? Like, these are the bad guys, these are good guys, God's going to do this, boom, end of, you know, that was a lot, a lot shorter, you know? Um, there's a couple of, of reasons why, right? Images and symbols have a power to kind of um, portray things in a really uh, exciting way. Um, and also a very, like, evocative way, all right? So you have the power of symbols and images that comes with apocalyptic. And this is also kind of a reality of if you're writing this type of literature at the time, um, if you're writing stuff that critiques empires, which we'll find that, that a lot of apocalyptic literature does, it's better to not say that plainly because empires have a way of, like, killing people who, you know, don't, get a, you know, don't like them, right? And so if you write it in a way that's a little obscure, you're saving your own butt a little bit, all right? So, so there's some different reasons why um, this would have been written that, this way, and also because it does allow for some sort of, like I said, reapplication into the future, which is helpful for us because we do not live in Daniel's time, right? And so for us to find, um, for us to find like uh, interpretation and application for us, this is actually really helpful that, that the imagery is like this, all right? And because of what um, apocalyptic is typically talking about, and this is something we'll focus in on a little bit later in the sermon, it's a genre that uniquely deals with what, what we would call today in the modern world the problem of evil. So we'll talk a little bit about and unpack it a little bit as we go. All right, so let's, let's just get into it. There are ba- basically three features of apocalyptic literature that I want to talk about today, and what we'll do is we'll break these up, and we'll walk through each three of them, and we'll kind of, we won't move through the passage um, uh, exactly chronologically how it's written, but we'll, we'll unpack it because there's like at one section you have the vision and then you have an interpretation. We'll kind of pair those up as we walk through and highlight these three features as we go. All right, so let's get started with the first feature of apocalyptic, and we'll, we'll jump into the passage now. Um, vision that unmasks what we see on earth. All right, it unmasks, an, it takes an earthly reality and it gives it uh, the God per, God's perspective, a God's eye view of it, and how we should view it. All right. Remember, we talked about the word apocalyptic is, comes from the word revelation. There's a revelation to us as to what an earthly reality might look like to us, how it actually is viewed from God's perspective. All right. So that's that's one feature. So let's get into the passage, and I'll show you a little bit what I mean and how it actually plays out in in Daniel here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. All right. So. We're actually moving backwards in the story now, because remember, Belshazzar shows up in chapter 5. He ends up getting, you know, dying in that passage, and Darius takes over. Then we do Daniel and lines in. This is actually, so this is moving backwards in the story some, but Daniel is letting us know. it. So a, a while back, I had this vision, and I'm going to tell you about it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So this is kind of sets the stage, and the flow of the passage is that Daniel is on the shoreline. He sees these four beasts come up. Um, each of the beasts gets us at least a verse to kind of focus in on and describe them. The fourth one gets some special attention, and we'll talk about why that is later on. God shows up, and then there's an interpretation at the very end that describes to Daniel what he's just seen. That's kind of how the passage um, flows. Now, I want you, though, to, to really think about what this vision is like for Daniel. He's having a dream, right? So it's a vivid, it's supposed to be a real thing. And you know how when you have dreams, like, you feel real emotions when you have them, right? I actually just had a dream 
I only have nightmares about zombies, and I had one just last night, and it's the only time I actually get a little bit nervous in my dreams. So, okay, but you know that you, this, this happens when you have dreams, right? You sometimes get scared. We're supposed to see that Daniel is like super terrified by what's going on around him. So let's, let's just pay attention to the scene here, all right? Daniel is standing on a shoreline. Wind is whipping all around him uncontrollably. It's, 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 it's causing his clothes to, to whip around him, and it's coming from these four winds. Now, like I said, uh, number imagery is super important when we talk about apocalyptic, and the four winds here probably means four corners. So from all areas on earth, there is this chaotic winds that are blowing all around him. So imagine that you're, you're standing on a seashore. This is what's going on. There's, obviously, there must be storm clouds in the air to cause all the wind to be going on, and the, the sea is raging in front of you. Right? Now, if you're an ancient Jewish person, you look at the sea as this place where just chaos reigns. Right? Think of, we, don't, we don't live in a marine culture, right? We don't live next to the ocean, so we don't have a good appreciation always for how terrifying the sea can be, right? And we just think, well, we have cruise liners and airplanes that can fly over the ocean. Boom, it's basically conquered. It's not that scary of a place anymore, but it actually is still a very terrifying place to us. We know a lot more about outer space than we actually do about the ocean itself, which is kind of a weird thing to think. Right? The, the ocean is a very chaotic place. It still is for us, even with all the technology that we've invented. So move back several thousand years and think about how terrifying it is to someone who's riding around on, on the sea in like a wooden boat that's no, you know, that, isn't, that could fit inside this room. Right? That is what, that's how they viewed the sea. It's a place where chaos reigns. So this is already your vision of the sea. And then some four beasts come out of it. Now I actually have... Um, a video clip I want to play for you. It's from the latest Godzilla movie. And it actually, I really just get, you know, yes, Godzilla. I know some of you think Godzilla's stupid or whatever. But just, a ma- you know, I think it actually p- takes this image of what we're seeing in, um, in the passage and actually sh- it puts it very well. So imagine you're the person in this clip. All right, you're, you're, you're standing in the middle of the ocean and, and you see what happens. Okay, all right, so this is Daniel in the passage here, right? The wind is whipping around and this gigant, these gigantic beasts come out of the water and, and, and this is supposed to like invoke a lot of terror in you. And the point of it is, is for Daniel to, to read it and to say, Daniel, you live in a very chaotic time, right? Where these beasts are running amok around the world and causing the type of chaos that something like Godzilla would. Would, would do, right? But, but in a real sense, right? Applied to actual specific forces and historical events that are taking place for him. That's the, that's the image that we're supposed to get from this, all right? And so, and at the point for us is that we also live in a very chaotic, turbulent time. I think standing on a seashore with giant beasts coming up out here that are terrifying us, we don't know what to do with, and wind whipping all over and to describe of this, the chaos of the place we're in is actually not a bad uh, like summary of what we, the time that we live in too. All right? So I want you to be thinking about that as we start to move through the passage. All right, so the second, um, uh, the second feature of apocalyptic that I want to point out is that it is metaphor that is pointing to what we would call, at least, political realities and where God's people fit into those specific political or so- social uh, realities, all right? Now, for, for two reasons does this happen. One, to critique them, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but two, to also explain Right, with all the stuff that's going on where we seem to fall, God's people seem to fall through the cracks 
sometimes, this is supposed to give us a vision for how we actually fit into it, how God is viewing this from his perspective and where our place is within it. Um, and, and they use these big symbol-laden things to, to explain it. Now, we think that seems like maybe stupid or we wish it would just come out and say it, but we actually do this too, all right? So imagine like 300, 400 years from now, um, someone from another culture is reading ba- an American newspaper from the 2016 election, and they read a line in there that says, it was an, you know, last night was an earth-shattering event. And they are like, wow, so this person got elected and then an earthquake happened on top of it, right? It's not meant to be read literally, but because it's such a big event, right? We're talking about it as if it's such a major event. We apply language that, um, that like points to that, right? Stuff that is, we, don't, we know it's not true, but like it could be described as a, t- a type of earthquake that, that had ripple effects through the whole world after it. So we do that too, and, and, and so this is what's taking place in the passage, all right? But they're applying it to specific realities. All right, so let's just kind of work through the passage itself now and talk about um, the, p- the specific realities that Daniel is, is going to talk about or, or learn about through his vision. So I, Daniel, I'm jumping all the way to to 15, verse 15 here. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there. This This is an angel that's hanging out next to him while he's having the vision. And I asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts, so these four beasts that are gonna come out of the sea, are four kings that will rise from the earth. All right, so that's our interpretation there for us. There are four kingdoms in view here for Daniel that are being described by these four beasts. And it's not a democratic view, all right? The reason that they're picking these massive beasts that tower over Daniel is supposed to say, you're kind of helpless, sorry, dude. Like, you can't go out and vote your values, right? You're, you get your good Jewish values and get all your buddies together and go out and vote this person, this beast out of office, right? That's not how it worked for them. Um, you know, you can't, don't go protest or impeach. You know, you can't impeach this, this beast if you don't like it. That's not how it works. We're supposed to view Daniel and us as readers as somewhat helpless to this, all right? Now, I want you to, we're going to talk through the beasts, but I want you to notice some of the features of these different beasts as we go. Because they are like amalgamations or mashups of different types of animals that are all kind of thrown into a blender and come out the other end. And, and we might think, you know, that's cool, right? Science fiction movies are like a cool 10-year-old boy's toy, like this animal that has like two animals mashed together, okay? But that's not how we should read it. All right? It would actually be super offensive to someone like Daniel who is rooted in this um, creation story where God comes and he orders everything, including animals, a specific way. And it's really important, it points to who God is, that there is an ordered reality to everything. So to mash things up would actually be to say, like, these beasts are, are, are causing chaos by disordering all that God has ordered by combining these two animals. This is a, a big thing in the Jewish world. Like, even some of their laws actually said things like, don't yoke a, a donkey and an ox together to pull your plow, all right? Like, animals are supposed to be with their type of animal, and that's super important because that points to the God who ordered them that way. So to have these blurred lines, we should view these animals as, like, kind of grotesque Frankenstein monsters, all right? And you'll see, you'll see what I mean. And some of the different features of these animals point a little bit towards their identity, although this is a little bit harder for us to nail down now because we're so far removed from it. 
All right, so the first beast that Daniel sees, jumping back to verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Now, every commentator, like, basically nobody doesn't think that this is Babylon. So Babylon is where the book of Daniel starts out, and it's where a good chunk of those, the narrative section takes place. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. This first beast is Babylon. Now, notice that the beast becomes more human as Daniel watches. It's, it's, its wings get plucked off, and it gets made to stand up, and it's given a human brain. Now, the reason why this is important is it is... Things that are more beastly in the Bible are seen, like if a human starts to act really animalistic in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we should see that as receding, them receding from the image of God. And being human is an important thing and, and being separate from animals. Remember, God is a God of order. He's created humans a certain way, so being coming animalistic is a bad thing. So when this animal becomes more human, it actually shows us that this animal is... Um, is becoming more God-honoring in a sense. It is, it is closer to its vocation of ruling wisely over creation than it originally was. Now, this is probably referring to Nebuchadnezzar's character arc in the book. If you remember in chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, he goes kind of crazy, and it's because he was so prideful, but then he ends up acknowledging God as, as king of of the world and humbling himself, and and we are, you know, by the end of it, at the very beginning, Nebuchadnezzar is seen as kind of not a great dude, but at the very end, we, we, he's a, it ends on a high note for him. We view Nebuchadnezzar in a positive light when his story in the book of Daniel ends, and this is kind of shown that this is what takes place for, for Babylon, all right? So don't assume that empires necessarily are inherently evil just because of this passage, right? Um, they have the capacity to bring great chaos and instability into the world, but not necessarily as a rule are all empires inherently evil. Empires is the, the Bible's not critiquing the idea of empires in general, it's just saying like a lot of them are pretty messed up, but they can have some good come out of them too. All right, verse five. And then before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, like I said before, everyone basically thinks the first beast is Babylon, but commentators start to diverge once we get to the, the next three beasts. Some commentators think that this is um, Media, the, the nation of Media. Others think it's Medo-Persia. So Media was a distinct empire, but it also teamed up with Persia to kind of rule the world, and people are like not sure if we should view it as the two of them combined or just Media, all right? Honestly, this beast and the next beast we're going to find don't hardly get any screen time, and it's because we shouldn't focus too much on them, basically. All right? it's, it's not intended for us to put a lot of importance or value on them. All right? Let's get to that second beast. Verse 6, after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, like I said, two views, and so if you think that the, the last beast was Media, you think this beast is Persia. If you thought the last beast was Media Persia, you think this beast is Greece. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know, it's not super important. Um, but um, what matters is that God gives the, this beast some authority to rule for a time. 
All right? Now, what happens to both these beasts is they kind of get swallowed up by the beast that comes after it. And we get to the last beast here, and this one gets a lot more screen time, uh, specifically than the last two. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and uh, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, again, commentaries are not on the same page as to, as to who this beast is. It's either Greece or Rome. It's got to be one of those two in Daniel's mind. And we're not entirely sure. There are some clues in the book itself that would point toward it being Greece. But it also makes a lot of sense that it would be Rome too. And certainly, a little b- around the time of Jesus, most Jewish interpreters of the book of Daniel saw this beast as Rome itself. All right. So, like I said, it's more hotly debated, but it's not terribly important, at least for the purposes of this sermon, that we nailed down the identities of these beasts. In verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, if you're in the pro-Greece crowd, you think this is a reference to a specific king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All right, he, is, he was a king of um, what was part of the Greek Empire, got divided into four parts, and he kind of set himself apart as a particularly bad dude. And Julie's going to talk a lot more about him in chapter 8, so I'm not going to say any more about him, and you guys can wait to learn more about Antiochus Epiphanes until then. I know you all can't wait to learn more about him, right? All right, so... Uh, verses 19 to 20. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before that, the, which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastf- boastfully. Now, like I said, he's like, I want to know more about this beast. And he doesn't really get a great answer to it. And, and for us, actually, that's super helpful. Because um, when, when we, you know, we come and we try to guess as to the identity of these things, who, who, you know, who is this specifically supposed to be referring to, it actually kind of keeps us from getting too specific, which is helpful because then, like I said, we can continue to reapply this into different settings. And basically the point is that there are always going to be these beasts and, the, and there's always going to be beasts like this fourth one that are going to pop up, all right? And so we kind of miss the point if we try to argue over who this was because you can reapply this pattern over and over again. And for different people who lived in Nazi Germany and were under oppression by Nazi Germany, that, we should, that was the fourth beast, right? Um, if, we, if you live in, in Rome in the time of the writing uh, of the book of Revelation, you, for, you know, for sure would have read Rome as the fourth beast because Rome was engaging in some of these fourth beast type of qualities, right? Destroying everything, boastful, having no shame and not honoring God in any way, all right? So it's kind of helpful for us that this symbolism is elusive because then we can continue to reapply it into subsequent settings. And that brings us to our first point of application for our sermon today. Don't live in a bubble because we do live in a chaotic, messed up world and it's closer to us than you might think oftentimes. In order for us to deal with evil, we have to understand that it's there. Now, like I said, I think we live in a time that could really be described well by winds swirling around us and beasts rising out of the, te- out of the sea to terrify us. And we look at the news, we see 
you know, craziness with impeachments, school shootings, um, terrorism, police shootings, wars, social media turmoil, fake news, election interference, all sorts of crazy stuff that's going on around us on a regular basis, and it's starting to become the norm for us, and it's just chaotic is a good word to describe it. And so we live in a similar type of time to Daniel. But our response is to not always be terrified by it, but to numb ourselves to it, to try to escape it, right? So, so imagine us standing on the same seashore as Daniel, and instead of looking at the beast, we just pull our phones out, and, you know, we, we watch some Netflix, or maybe we get a good picture of ourselves standing on the beach and post, check it out, I'm at the beach, hashtag windy day, hashtag sea creatures, right? <laughs> this is how we would deal with something like this if we were Daniel, right? We would numb ourselves to it or we would just use our phones to, to, to kind of downplay what's going on. And when we do that, we're not living with the reality that the passage is telling us, what scripture is telling us, that we live in chaotic times, and we, you know, we will always live in chaotic times. That's part of what it means to live in exile. That's part of the, the point of the book. Now, who is the beast, right? Like, what, what are we specifically talking about here? And government is the straightest line here. Like, to, to go exactly to what Daniel is referring to, I can specifically say, these are kings. But I don't think we should always read it as just the governments are the only thing that the beast could be applied to, right? I think the beast that we're talking about here can be worked out in all sorts of different ways, right? Really, it's just big forces that um, shape our world and impact us, put pressure on us in different ways, and are unconcerned with God's authority. In fact, are boastful towards it, especially like that fourth beast and that little horn that comes out of it. So any force that's really only concerned with just expanding its own footprint, that, that chews people up in its wake, and, and it has a big impact on the way that we think in regards to God, I think you can apply beast-like language to it. And for us, like all different things could fall into this category. I'm not saying they always do, right? But, but for sure they could. Big big companies, you know, technology, you know, news, different cable stuff, art, whatever. It can be expressed in all sorts of different ways. The way to identify it is more by its, its qualities of, of what it's saying and how it postures itself toward God and the impact it has, whether that's for good or bad. That's how we're going to go about maybe kind of making that sort of connection. And when we move into the New Testament, the book of Revelation, if you've read the book of Revelation, you find a lot of the same type of imagery as in the book of Daniel. And we find another beast in, in the book of Daniel who's teamed up with to kind of form this unholy trinity. Satan, the beast, and then the prophet of the beast, which is kind of like its propaganda wing. Um, the, the thing that goes about really doing the job of, of declaring the praises of the beast. But really, so we're supposed to see like whenever the beast is working its way out, there are these dark spiritual forces that are working it out too, that are kind of behind all of it. So this unholy trinity gives us a bigger picture of this. And so you, and this gets more clear in, in the Bible as we move forward. And as we see it picked up, like I said, in other apocalyptic um, genres. So read the, the book of Revelation is actually a super helpful book um, to help us understand what's going on in the book of Daniel. It's kind of like a, like a sequel to it in some ways. All right. Okay. So like I said, though, the impact of the beast is all, or the beasts, it's all over, right? School shootings, terrorism, police shootings. Um, these are all ways in which the beast is it's working itself into society, and it's, it's subtle, right? Like, anytime we try to draw too straight a line, I think we're actually doing ourselves a disfavor. The goal is to try to muddy the waters, because it would be great if, like, there was just this 
mustache-twirling bad guy, right? We had Thanos from the Avengers movies, who's pretty unashamed about the fact that he's trying to, like, kill half of life in the entire universe. Like, he's not apologetic about it, right? He's not going about it in some sort of, like, um, subtle way. But that's not, that's not how the, the beast works, right? Evil works a little bit differently in our world. Um, there is, there, evil has this, has this way that it works itself out where it, it likes to twist and shape other things into its own evil, ugly image, right? So I, I talked about Thanos as an Avengers bad guy, but a more realistic way that the Beast operates in his, his power is let's pick a different Marvel villain and let's go to Black Panther. Killmonger is like a much better example. This is a kid who grows up in L.A. during the riots that are going on there in, in the early 90s, and his dad is trying to do something about oppression um, for, for black people and, and gangs in the neighborhood to try to like do something about all the police shootings that are going on, and his dad ends up getting killed, and so this kid gets entered into this world of violence, and he ends up um, trying to respond to what's been done to him in basically the same way that the evil like happened in the first place. And he becomes this villain who's, who wants to, to go out and right wrongs, right? Take, take things that are actually wrong about the world and go about um, dealing with them in ways that are just like the evil that was done to him. This is the way that evil actually works in the world. It twists, it corrupts, it, it ruins something that's good or innocent and turns it into something that's no longer that way. All right? Um, Miroslav Volf in his excellent book, Ex- Exclusion and Embrace, talks about this, like, the insidious nature of evil. That's what he says about it. It's like, it creates a world where actually nobody ends up being innocent. That's what it wants, is it wants to twist everything into its own evil and ugly image. And that's the way that evil works out in the world. It's much more gray than we would like, and even sometimes more gray than the passage, at least on a surface reading, plays itself out. It wants to create a cycle where no one's innocent, and the beast creates lots of little beasts, all right? That's the goal of evil in the world. And it reminds, that's a good reminder for us that, right, when we talk about evil, we talk about the impact of evil in God's world, we end up becoming part of the problem too, right? The same evil that's out there in the world, it's in us too. And that's at the heart of the gospel, right? That's why, that's why we believe the gospel, right, is we recognize we're a part of the problem too. We don't live in a world where we're the innocent good guys and everyone else is the bad guys. That's not how it works out. If this disturbs you in some way, that's okay. You're in good company because Daniel says it at the very end of the passage too. At, this is the end of the matter, but I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, thankfully, God does something about the beasts in the world. And so we're going to talk about that now and that shows up in the passage for us. All right, and this is the last feature of apocalyptic imagery is that there is God's triumph over evil and the vindication of his people in that. All right, and so this leads to our second point of application, that God is aware and he judges, he does something about evil in the world. Verses 9 and 10, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, the throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of, uh, before him, coming out from before him, sorry. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was sealed and the books were opened. All right, so we see these beasts come out of the sea, right? They're great and they're terrifying and they tower over Daniel. But then the scene from heaven is revealed 
where it's like the curtain is pulled back and we see God up there and he's on this throne and he's got tens of thousands of people attending to him to show his greatness. It dwarfs the beast, right? Even in all of its power, we see who God is and now he towers over it and we're supposed to be filled with, with excitement and hope because God sees it and he's going to do something about it and it's clear by the court around him that he is much greater than these beasts. And what he does is he opens these, the court was seated. So everyone takes their seat. It's like a big court, court proceedings about to start. And the judge sits down and he opens up these books is what it says. Now the idea of these books being open and consulted, it points to the life of the royal court where, where you would have kept track of everything that was happening, good or bad in your kingdom, and you put it into records of events and decisions. And so the, the, the judge is going to open these up and make a decision concerning the beasts over their deeds. He's going to do something about it. Now, um, I think we, we should read this and we should love it, right? The idea of a God who judges evil, who does something about evil in the world. But if we're honest, we actually don't always like that image of God, right? A lot of times we want a God of, 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 lo- God of just love and mercy, a God who, who, who doesn't look at people, doesn't judge them, but just loves them, all right? And that's a, that's a good thing, right? It is, it is who God is. But if we leave off the part where God does something about evil in the world, then we're, like, we're not doing something, something about these beasts that run amok through the world. We should want a God who does do something about evil, all right? And, and so this passage shows us that God sees and he's going to do something about evil. Now, the hard part about it is that he doesn't respond right away. He lets these four beasts all come out, all terrify, all have their chance to, to go and to do uh, their, you know, their, their bad deeds in the world, most of them at least. And we might wish that God would have showed up like right at the beginning, right, instead of waiting until the end, and he would have just punched that first beast and pushed it back in the water and caused like a, a, a four-beast pileup wherever they're coming from, right? So just keep them all from coming out of the ocean and just you know, close it back up and keep them stuck under the water or something. He doesn't do that, though, right? Now, why doesn't he do that? And this is where we're starting to get into that problem of evil territory I was talking about beforehand. Why does God allow these beasts to come up and, and to, to have their reign in the world? And, like, listen, the passage doesn't give us an answer to that. And that's something we just got to sit in sometimes, right? Um, and I don't want to give us short answers to this problem because it is a big thing that people have been wrestling through for, for, for centuries, asking the question, why do bad things happen? Why does evil happen in the world? Why are there beasts in the first place? Where did the beasts even come from, right? Like, did, what, did, was God a part of their making in some way? Was he sleeping one night and these beasts all got together and decided to, to go and do their thing? We don't know. The, the passage does not give us an answer to that. And like I said, this is such a big topic that I don't want to just give you all a small thing and just say, boom, problem solved, problem of evil, all done. Get some bread and coffee in the back and we'll see you next week. You know, I don't want to do that. But I do want to say a couple things about it, okay? First thing I just want to say is that God does have a plan. That's something we see in the passage. And just because you can't see a reason doesn't mean that there isn't one. Uh, Alvin Plantinga is a is a pretty famous uh, Christian apologist. He's I, Brett, you know, is he still at Notre Dame? He retired, okay. But he was at Notre Dame. He was like the chair of the philosophy department or something like that, right, for, for a really long time. And he'd written a lot of stuff on, on apologetics. And he has this great thought experiment. Um, I think he must be from Michigan or something because he talks about camping in Michigan. And he says, like, when you're camping and you open up your tent, 
they're, you know, you look inside your tent, you don't see any bugs in there, but apparently there are these types of bugs that you get in Michigan called noceums, which is a really good name to describe them because they're so small, you can't see them. They, you have to really get, get in and, and look at them. All right, so if I look inside this tent and I say, oh, there's no bugs in here, I can't see anything, so they must not be in here, you would actually be wrong. There could be like thousands of noceums crawling around in your sleeping bag or your food or your clothes or whatever, right? <laughs> Don't go camping in Michigan, I guess, is the, is the application here. But um, just the, the point is, is just because you can't see something doesn't mean that they're not there, all right? And the same is true when it comes to God's reasons or his plans. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that he couldn't be doing something, right? Let's not put too much weight on ourselves. And, and listen, when we look back through the book of Daniel, we actually see that God does do something about these beasts coming out, right? If we read what's happening in the book of Daniel is taking place kind of concurrently to these beasts coming out of the water. Remember, we said that first beast is Babylon. And remember, in the, in the vision, that the beast becomes more human, right? And, and we're supposed to see view more positively towards the end of its appearance in the vision than at the beginning. And, rem- and remember, the whole first part of the book of Daniel is the story about this wise and, and studious a God worshiper who is, who through God's working through evil, right, through this exile, has now put Daniel in a position to have influence over the king of Babylon, and he exercises that influence in such a way that changes the nature of the beast altogether and turns it into, into this thing that instead of causing chaos in God's world, actually brings about some flourishing and some good, all right? And in a sense, it kind of almost tames the beast, all right? so, so maybe the way that God intends for evil to be dealt with in the world, at least in part, is to not just shoot the bad guys, right? As much as we would like for him to just, you know, cause a missile strike to come from heaven and kill all the bad dudes, right? That's what we would like to see happen sometimes. But maybe God's way, at least in part, of dealing with evil in his world is to send his agents, his worshipers, into the world uh, to, to try to bless and redeem creation instead of just blowing it up because it's gone wrong or gone haywire in some way, right? Maybe, maybe God's goal is like what he says in Genesis 50, 20, where, where he's talking to Joseph, and he says, what was intended for evil to, towards you when, when your brothers kicked you out and tried to get you just killed, um, I intended for good. So I, you know, it happened, and I worked something pretty magnificent out of it where Joseph gets this place where he's now a, a wise, like, the number two in charge of all of Egypt and helps him prepare for this famine where not a lot of people are going to die now, right? Maybe it's God's intent to work through evil to bring about good to try to redeem it. And, and, and this is a more radical way to deal with evil than to just come in and, and, and kill the beasts or something. It's a more radical and a better way to, to uh, redeem instead of destroy, all right? So, so maybe that's what God could be doing, right? And that's where some, something where we get to fit into that, which is pretty cool, I think, to what God is doing about evil in the world, all right? Second thing I just want to say about the idea of the problem of evil is that this plan is tied to a story, all right? We can't forget that this is actually a story. So we would like it if, like, anytime something bad happened to us, God showed up, just like he does in the vision, right? And he opens up, he has all the, the court around him, and he opens up his book, and he finds out that we were, we were actually not guilty, and, like, let's get rid of the bad thing that's happening to you here. But we have to remember that, the, that Daniel is a story. What we're hearing, what we're reading here in, in Daniel chapter 7, it is a story, and the whole Bible is the story about God doing something about evil. But it takes place according to the storyline of this story. Right? God is not just going to, we would like it, but he's not just playing whack-a-mole with evil in the world. Just 
God, can you get that, get that mole? Oh, there's one right over there too. Can you, do, come on, God, look, look, what are you doing, right? He is doing something, and it's a story that, um, that we can't like tear apart what God is doing apart from the story, right? That is what God is doing about evil. And, and the end of this story, and this is what we're gonna talk about here as we kind of end the, end the sermon, land the plane, is of, of a people who are vindicated and rescued from the terror of the beasts. And so while the beasts are strong and they are a challenge and they cause a lot of havoc in the world, uh, God's, their, their influence is not any greater than the power of God. All right, And ultimately we see that happen. Chat, uh, verse 18, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And in verses 21 to 22, as I watched, this horn, remember this boastful horn that pops up earlier, was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. The Ancient of Days is God himself. This is how they refer to him in the and so the end game of this passage, and for us, right, we talk about reapplication into the future for us, is uh, peace for his people. Now, this is part one of, I, I've talked through every verse of this passage except for two verses. I left them out conveniently, and we'll talk about them next week. Because I really want to talk about exactly how this plan is enacted, but I want to really give it the full weight uh, that it deserves, and also give this stuff that we talked about today its full weight. As well, but but I want us to take hope in the idea that God sees, and I want that to be our big takeaway as we leave. All right, and 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 while the passage gives us a vision of God in heaven viewing what's going on, when we read that whole story of Scripture, right, when we get into the biography or or the history or the narrative of Scripture, we find out that God doesn't actually just observe this from some ivory castle, you know, basically removed from where we're at and what's going on with us, but his response, his seeing comes in his own suffering as well, right? He saw the evil in the world with human eyes, right? He, he felt the lashes from human whips and heard human insults enter his human ears. He felt breath leave his human lungs as he looked out with human eyes, lifted up on a human cross, bleeding human blood out of his human side. This is how he sees the evil in the world. So he's not just uh, sitting up there doing nothing about it. His response is to actually enter into it with us and to see it. So he, d he doesn't just see it. He understands. He gets it, right? This is at the very center of our faith that God entered into, into our story, entered into this world that where beasts are running crazy, and he himself endured the suffering to be with us and to do something about it. And we'll talk about specifically how what he does about it fits into Daniel 7 next week. But for now, we're going to close and we're going to enter into uh, a time of worship, a time of, of response um, to, to what we just, just discussed, right? We're going to take communion where we remember that God sees and remember what that, how that seeing took place on a cross, his body shed and broken on our behalf. We're going to do it in prayer, praying to the God who does see and who judges evil. So if you uh, would like prayer during this time of worship, someone will be in the back waiting to pray for you. We're going to do it in worship, where we go to God in worship, even if we don't know what's going on, right? We're still going to praise God as if he is that, that judge sitting in that court, that throne room, raising our eyes above, you know, to see him in that place. That's what worship does, and that's why we're going to do it now. And one other type of worship, just to highlight as always, is giving. You can give in the back. All right, so let's, let's enter into a time of prayer before we, we head into our time of response to this, the passage today. 
Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who just sits in an ivory tower, who, who doesn't do anything about beasts in the world, but are one who, who responds and responds in, in a way that, Lord, even if we don't understand that it is the response that is needed, Lord, it is the one that it is. And I pray that you would help us to give us eyes to see that, unmask or reveal to us the ways in which your work in the world is a part of you doing something about the terror of the beasts that are all around us, God. Help us to see that, but then to turn our hope and our attention to you, just like we see Daniel do in this passage. And Lord, help us to be a part of the work of of doing something about evil in the world as as we are transformed and as we go and we do work like Daniel to try and and tame beasts and to try to redeem evil um, where we can, Lord. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.